And we're recording. Hey, everybody. How's it going today? Hey. Martin, how are you on this lovely day? Hey, well, I'm doing quite, quite uh, spiffy today. Loving the sun and loving the high heat. Don't you love the heat? Oh, I normally do. But honestly, I've had enough about I've just had enough of this heat business. Tired of the heat. Brother, I wish we could all walk around naked all day in the heat. Perfect. That's utopia. That's my heaven right there. Well, we, we don't live in Spain, so we can't do that yet. <laughs> Gosh, I just, I'm dreading uh, the upcoming winter. Yeah. And I know that's like in a three months or whatever from now, but still. Yeah. Get the I, hell out of here. I am not uh, winter. I don't know what I hate worse, like apocalyptic levels of heat or winter. Hmm. Well, well I, I, I do have some good news, too, about, uh, you know, what we talked last time. Uh, we just had a conversation on our last podcast. Uh, we didn't really have a topic. Well, we did have a topic, but we talked a lot about my trip that I just went on and uh, got a couple books that I'm proud of. And... Uh, I've been reading a lot of Bukowski. So that's been great. Charles Bukowski. Oh, yeah. I've, I've been reading his post office, his uh, 1971 novel, Post Office. And uh, funny and insightful. And also, I'm telling you, it's an excellent, excellent piece about the American worker and the psyche of the American worker, the American laborer. And the depersonalization of the American worker. Hmm. I actually remember reading a little bit of that when I was in a Barnes and Noble once. And what, I, post, post office? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got quite a few scenes. Uh, one of them I will not uh, describe in detail because it is uh, quite graphic. And yeah, you, yeah, you probably already do. Um, is it the, I don't even, I don't even want to say this word because I hate, I hate, obviously I hate what it is, but are you talking about the rape? rape? Yeah. Uh, see, I, hmm, that's interesting. I don't really think that woman was, I don't know. Yeah. I think she had a fetish. I don't think that was the case. I mean, I honestly hope that's a fictional character. Um, Many of the Bukowski novels are <laughs> largely fictional, not entirely fictional. So it's tough. It's tough. Um, but yeah, on the topic of reading stuff, while you were and I, while you and I were talking earlier, I found this article from NPR that I'm going to share in the Discord oh, yeah. right now. All right. Look it up, bro. You like superheroes? Oh, no. no. Oh, my God. No. Come on. Oh, yeah. My man. He's finally come out. It's canon, folks. It is canon. Robin 
you know, the one from Batman is gay. My boy is finally out of the closet and he's living his best life. I don't even care about Batman, but you know what? He's got a cute looking guy here and he's looking happy. And you know, they're going to go on a date. I'm cool with this. This is great. Good for him. Good for yeah. Robin. I wish they would have made him uh, look like a man. He looks like a fucking boy. Ugh. Why? He's a he's a beautiful looking young guy. What? He looks like a little boy. Make no, he, him a man, damn it. Why did he spoil? Why do gays always? Why do gay dudes have to be twinks frequently? Come on, make him a man. I want to see a gay guy with fucking hair on his chest, with fucking a beard that goes down to his dick. That's well, the kind of gay guy I want to see. Well, Robin I, is not a bear. You are looking for a bear. And if you are complaining that Robin is not a bear, okay. Are you also going to complain that he's not like an alien too? It looks like if you punched him, he would fold up and break into pieces. No, I don't think so. He's he's got. And, and I don't want to imagine him doing having sex or anything, but they, they, he's like not he having sex in this. He's sex. going on it. He's asking his like romantic. Whoever this blonde dude is out on a and date. This blonde dude looks like a boy too. This is oh come on, man. Give me some manly gay looking men. Come on. It's Robin. What do you expect out of Robin? And some points of order, and this is in the article here. This is not the original Robin, the freewheeling acrobatic Dick Grayson introduced in nineteen forty, who grew up and assumed his own superhero identity of Nightwing. It's not that guy. Nor is it the second mm-hmm. Robin. Jason Todd, who famously died a bit. Uh, He got better, it's comics, and adopted his own violent, deadly, anti-heroic identity of the Red Hood, so it's not him. Neither is it the fourth Robin, Damian Wayne, Batman's son who was raised by an international cadre of assassins-slash-eco-terrorists, a.k.a. the League of Shadows. And no, this is not the third Robin, Tim Drake. The Robin who resembles his mentor in intellect and demeanor. It's not this guy. This is like Tim. Oh, no, this is the third Robin, Tim Drake. This is Tim Drake that we're talking about. Oh, this is the third. Okay. Yeah, this is the third Robin, Tim Drake. And he's gay and he's beautiful. and He's got his boyfriend here and he's beautiful too. Damn, I wish I had his boyfriend's hair. Yeah, he has nice hair, but good. Come on, man. Why do they gotta look like boys and creepy best and teenage boys? Come on, ugh. It's it's just not it's Robin. When have Robin you ever seen beard. when have you ever seen bearded burly Robin? Would that be Robin if he had big beard and dad bod? Would anyone well, recognize that as Robin? If they're gonna make him gay, make him like I don't know, not look gay. What what does that not mean? Like- How does one look gay? <laughs> I mean look stereotypical gay. Why are you the why are you the gay police all of a sudden? Give him a fucking Freddie give him a Freddie Mercury mustache. That'd be awesome. Okay, but you would still complain that oh he still looks so effeminate and weak. Well, at least he'd have a badass mustache. Well that's not the way of modern gay dudes, okay? I, I don't know. 
Maybe <laughs> maybe a few gay dudes, but not many a gay dude. Besides, this looks great. I think this looks fine on him. Besides, yeah, I mean, if if he had like a mustache, like if he had a mustache, th- like this Tim Drake, I don't know. He would look more like a sex offender. He would look more <laughs> like, you know, Uncle Roger. <laughs> it's like, don't go near, whip his ass, okay? don't go near He's Uncle Roger, hero. kids. But no, this is Tim Drake. He is gay. And that's great. Well, he's a superhero, and he looks like I could whip his ass. Well, that's literally every Robin. Jesus Christ, I don't know where the fuck I'm going to fight him. Come on, man. That's literally every single Robin that's ever existed. (laughs) Every Robin looks like you can whip his ass. I guess. (laughs) What? Jeez, do you not know who Robin is? This guy just needs to grow some pubic hair, okay? Grow some hair all over your body, all right? Look at this guy over here. I need my gay Robin to be more manly and burly, like John like, Smith. Like, like Brokeback Mountain. Have those guys, you know, those are some manly men, you know? Those guys were clean shaven. But still. Did they, you not see that movie? Like, they still look like, you know, they dress like men. This guy, he's dressed like He's a, He's a superhero in a comic. What do you want him to dress like? The other guy's dressed in a hoodie. What? Come on, a hoodie? So? Maybe it's cold. Maybe he's cold inside that house. You don't know what's going on in the story. What do you want him to... What do you want the other guy to wear, huh? You want him to wear, like, overalls? I don't want him to look like... I mean, I don't want to use that word, but... I don't know if that word Twinkie. I don't know if that's offensive or not. Sorry if it is out there. I apologize. I don't mean to be. Mm-mm-mm. Keep hating. Keep hating on the now out gay Robin. Look, if I were Batman and I seen this Tim Drake, this Robin, I'd be like, all right, come with me. We're going to the gym. You're going to be on a high protein diet. We're going to get you looking like a man. Who do you, you think? Know? Who do you think dressed and styled him like this? I don't know, but it, it looks like his balls haven't even dropped yet. Do you not realize that? Yeah, this now gay, openly gay character in the tutelage of an older, rich man who cultivated him to look like this. Do you think that was just purely by accident? No. Like if he were rich and you were in a suit or something. Batman is very much an older daddy type for the gays. That's why he keeps on having these young men come to him, you know. I don't know. Actually, I feel the best superhero ever. Nah, fuck fuck Batman. He is vengeance. He is the knight. He He sucks. Batman sucks. He has the most real supervillains, I tell you. He's just a rich guy who spends most of his time beating up mentally ill poor people. (laughs) <laughs> I wouldn't say ment- poor people, but mentally ill, yeah? That's all he does. He maintains... He doesn't really solve anything. He's just like... I, I don't know. You could accuse me of having a shallow analysis of a comic that I don't actually care about. But... <laughs> I mean, Gotham always sucks. And I think the reason why it sucks is inequality. 
and Batman represents that inequality. He's a benefactor and an enforcer of inequality. You have a point there. Yeah, inequality. Yeah. But I I like the dichotomy between Batman and his villains. I mean, for, well, there's not really a dichotomy because if you think about it, Batman is as dark as the killers he fights. I mean, Batman, if he were not a superhero, he would be a mass murderer. I mean, isn't that like something they did with Batman before and numerous stuff? I'm sure they have. I'm familiar more with the uh, the new 52 Batman. I think that's the old one. I'm not sure. But I, I, the new 52 Batman has some very disturbing villains. I mean, you want to talk about the new 52 Scarecrow. Check this out. This is some disturbing shit. Uh, you know who Scarecrow is, right? Yeah. Oh, you there? Well, yeah. I think, oh, so Scarecrow, Jonathan Crane. Um, so in the New 52, we get a little backstory into Scarecrow's uh, or Jonathan Crane's past. And Jonathan Crane's father was and was a monster. He used to lock up Jonathan, a young Jonathan Crane, the boy Jonathan Crane. He used to lock him up in a basement with like dead bodies, skeletons, also that he could also that he could study his son's fear. And that's what made Jonathan Crane crazy. Oh, that's a little yeah. that's a little extra. Yeah. Also, have you heard about Dollface? Nah. I don't know who that oh. is. Dollface is another one of these new 52 Batman villains. Dollface Dollface's father was a cannibal serial killer who used to do his crimes in front of his son, forcing his son to watch. And Dollface grew up and became a murderer or and a killer. And Dollface, yeah, this is some disturbing shit even just to think about. But Dollface would kill people, cut their bodies up, and then stitch them together. Dude, this shit is like the most disturbing shit ever. And that's why I like Batman, because Batman's villains are disturbing. And Joker, come on, Joker in the New 52 has his freaking face cut off by Dollface. And the Joker just wears wears that face with like some, uh, I don't know, some kind of thing where it holds his face up. But, whoo, God, I don't know who the hell's writing that stuff, but man. Ooh, this is some disturbing shit. Are you familiar with the Batman who laughs? No, but I'm gonna look it up now. Yeah, he is kind of like, I mean, he's like, let me see here. Earth 22, dark multiverse. Yeah, so basically he's like a, a villain. He's a hybrid character of Batman and Joker. Member of the Dark Knights first appeared in Dark Knights Metal. Received his own series and served as the main antagonist and Batman and Superman in 2019. And DC Comics Year the Villain alongside Lex Luthor. He's a pretty freaky looking dude. Oh my god, yeah. Looks like an SM character or something. Looks like something from Hellraiser. He is very SM looking. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, these people who write the comics, man. 
Apparently he's also affiliated with the Legion of Doom. I'm looking at more images of him right now. Where Joker's teeth are always, like, scary to me. Yeah, Batman Who Lasts. Actually, I think he has a... There's a skin of that in Mortal Kombat, Batman Who Lasts, for Noob Cybot. He's even got chains, like he... Yeah. Look at... Dude, this is a Pinhead-inspired, his outfit. Yeah, he's got the tight-fitting... He's a very S&M-looking character. He's got chains, he's got that little tight-fitting black... Even the midriff kind of looks like Pinhead a little bit. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Ugh. But we didn't we did not convene today to talk about Batman. <laughs> yeah. Even though we spent maybe the past 15 minutes talking about Batman. Well, we talked about Tim Drake and I'm yeah. like, man, make him a little more uh see in this podcast we do talk about gender and stuff and yeah, so I guess that is something. Martin likes his gays big and hairy. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm good. I just, I just don't know why, like, every, why, like, this, I don't know why the stereotypical, I guess, American version of a gay guy is, like, a young person. That, that's kind of scary to me because I think about, for example, the Greeks. <laughs> I know we talk about them a lot. But. Okay, maybe I can see that point, but. Yeah. <laughs> I think theirs are, like, I think the Greek version is much younger than that. Well, yeah, yes, and yeah, yes, and no. Also, I mean, yeah, but they, they yeah, disturb. Oh, God damn it, this is disturbing. <laughs> you, I think you're just reading too much into this. You disturb me. <laughs> me. All I pointed out that it's canonical that Tim Drake is gay. That's it. Oh, God. and you went on your own little weird thing. <laughs> but like I said, yeah. we're not here to talk about Batman. That was just an icebreaker. <laughs> we actually came to talk about something that is not very gay at all. Um, very something very, I guess you could say, pure. If you know what I mean. And by pure, I mean very religious and very stuffy and very grim and dour. Well, I mean, it it starts off well, you know, wanting to escape your country because you're not allowed to practice your religion. Mm -hmm. Let's get the heck out of here. Yeah. But we're going to see freedom isn't free, folks. <laughs> freedom is not free indeed. <laughs> uh, nice tie-in, right? Freedom ain't free. Yeah. Yeah, so, bro. Freedom ain't free. I'm proud to be American. We're <laughs> least free. We are here to talk today about the Puritans of Plymouth, what was it, Plymouth Mouth? What is the name of the colony that they established? I just call it the Plymouth Colony. Yeah, Plymouth Colony. Or the settlement or whatever. Yeah, I don't know why I said Plymouth Mouth. 
Plymouth. You say Plymouth House? No, I said Plymouth. Plymouth oh. Mouth. <laughs> well, you know, I love what Malcolm X or I like to say Malik El Shabazz said about Plymouth Rock, right? We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. It landed on us. Yes. Shoot, I would say, though, you know, if you go back to our, uh, what, episode 9 and 10, shit, Jamestown landed on you, motherfucker. Not Plymouth, but yeah. we'll see. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we are going back in time, folks. We are going okay. back. How far in time are we going back, Martin? Oh, so we're going to go to the 1600s again, the 17th century. And um, yeah, a little. Uh, so I guess this podcast will be about the American value. Not I guess, but this will be about the American value of freedom. And we're going to see that this value will start out um, with the pilgrims and the Puritans. And um, you know how last time we talked about the American value of pursuit of profit and how it got real ugly real fast? Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Now we're going to talk about the American value of freedom. But we're going to do a little more nuanced discussion of freedom. What? did the pilgrims and Puritans have in mind when they sought freedom, religious freedom? Mm-hmm. And that's what we're going to be talking about. All right. Since this is more your area of expertise than mine, do you want to get this gravy train wrong? All right. So the first thing that we're going to have to know, we're going to have to back the truck up real quick here. And we're going to have to make a distinction because people get the pilgrims and the Puritans confused, but two separate peoples. So let's go and let's talk about that first and foremost. And I sent some links for you in the chat of uh, a couple of sources we're going to be using. I have them opened up right here. Beautiful. What's the difference between Puritans and pilgrims? Oh, yeah. So, first of all, we have to start out with those pilgrims. Pilgrims, right? Sounds like a cool word. Pilgrims. So, pilgrim, pilgrims. So, first of all, you have to know when we talk about the Plymouth colony or settlement or whatever you want to call it, Plymouth Mouth. <laughs> uh, we got to be talking first about the pilgrims because the pilgrims were before the Puritans. But we're going to be talking mostly about the Puritans today and this colony. Um, And then in our next podcast, part two, we're going to be talking about Puritans and the Indians. But before we get to the Puritans, we got to back up that butt a little bit and talk about pilgrims. Back up. All right. So cornbread. What have you found about? about the difference between the Pilgrims and the Puritans. What can you see? Well, as I believe you said, the Pilgrims came before the Puritans. Was that correct? Yeah, to the Plymouth, yeah. All right. So this is just me doing some skimming and scanning. Um, I'm going to say that the big difference were that the Puritans were a group more so motivated by religious separatism than the pilgrims 
Was would that be correct? Yeah, no, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, because the pilgrims wanted to separate from the church in England. Yep. Yes, that's that nasty old stinky Church of England. Uh, yeah, which was only started, by the way, because King Henry VIII wanted to get divorced, but the Catholic Church wouldn't let him. So this motherfucker, this fat fuck, is like, hey. I'm going to start my own religion. Are you trying to body shame King Henry VIII? Well, if this shoe fits, motherfucker, you better wear it and walk it out. This fat ass. I hate King Henry VIII. He's probably, you know, fucking while he's eating a turkey stick. I hate him. Goodness gracious. And he had women, innocent women killed. That's a little cringe. Yeah. All because they didn't, they didn't give him a son. One of them the eventually hell? did, but he didn't last too long. Well, I hope that fat fuck is eating a turkey leg in hell right now. I mean, I don't mean to curse, but I just hate that son of a monkey. Him and his fat belly. <laughs> Jeez. Well, now that you've gotten that out of your system, after oh. you've no doubt alienated our bo- body positive audience <laughs> oh come on man don't, don't make it like that now <laughs> well I'm, I'm i'm making fun of king henry the eighth yes i he know could've, he could have cut down on the carbs you know what i'm saying yeah but someone will likely say you didn't have to go that route <laughs> oh come on like i i'm not the one actually saying this but someone could hypothetically say hey yes all these terrible things are bad but like is his obesity part of his moral failing? I would say, yeah, because, I mean, the guy was more degenerate. What? I mean... He had an injury. But, Wasn't it... Didn't he have, like, an injury or something that made him, like, unable to be as active as he used to be? Well, he was active and screwing. He could screw. He could screw. <laughs> but, yeah, so... Let's at, hold on. Let's look at this fool for a minute here. This six marriage having mofo. This is no longer about the pilgrims or the Puritans. This is about King Henry VIII. Well, I mean, that's where, you know, he started it. He started the, the Church of England. Yeah. 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 So his disagreement with Pope Clement VII about an annulment for his marriage led him to start the English Reformation, where he separated the Church of England from papal authority and yeah. then not only does he do that this idiot this moron appoints himself as the supreme head of the church of england yeah the i mean that's that's still the same today i mean technically the head of the church of england is queen elizabeth oh God. yeah oh boy yeah i you know my views on the queen of england right yes i, mean, I do yeah. But we're not here to talk about the Queen of England. Yeah, yeah, we're not here. To, yeah, I'm going to zip my mouth up real quick. We're here to be educational. Educational, right? So, Woo. let's get in, back into it. Who were the pilgrims? Before we have another t- tangent. <laughs> Before we have another meltdown, you know? Yeah. Woo. So, <laughs> we. my first answer, as you said, was initially correct. That they were pretty much... Uh, separatists, very faith-motivated separatists, 
wanting to escape the clutches of the vile Church of England. Yeah. And look at this, too. Um, you know, the Church of England, every British city... So according to history.com, and we're looking at an article right now on it, according to them, every British citizen was, was expected to attend the Church of England, and those who didn't were punished by the state. How would you, you even keep? Me? How would you even keep count of that? Yeah, like how would I you mean, track it, that? It, it was a feudal system, so I imagine it was based on uh, the feudal lords taking inventory of their population. I suppose. I didn't see you in church Sunday, Mrs. Mary Beth. Love, I had to. <laughs> oh, love, I was busy turning up the turrets. On Sunday, on the Sabbath? Yes, my lord. Feudalism, ugh. And so, one group of farmers in Northern England, they became uh, known as separatists, and they began to worship in secret, knowing full well that it was considered an act of treason. And this is this is where the pilgrims start. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so when it became impossible for them to live this way, they sought out freedom. Freedom to get away from the Church of England and they began to seek for a new place to live. And so these pilgrim separatists, these pilgrims, you know, guess the first place they went to. Very interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Did you see that one yet? Uh, not yet. I'm opening up some other stuff here, too. Okay. So the first place these separatists go, or I should say pilgrims, I don't want to confuse, but the, the first place the pilgrims go to escape, you know, the abusive Church of England, they go to the Netherlands. <laughs> Interesting, right? Because it's a very rich, wealthy, maritime superpower, right? And it was more religiously diverse and tolerant. Mm -hmm. So they go to the Netherlands, but while life was peaceful in Holland, it wasn't the English and the separatists or the pilgrims feared that their children were losing their native English culture. <laughs> Interesting, right? Yeah, like, why, why are my kids speaking Dutch, yeah? And they're smoking weed. And so... These pilgrims, they get the idea in their head. They're like, you know what? Let's just go someplace where nobody lives. Well, where they think nobody lives. And so these pilgrims, they go across the Atlantic Ocean to the New World. So and from, uh, yeah. was that the, the reason why they decided to leave the Netherlands? I guess they wanted freedom to practice not only their religion, but their culture. I don't know. To me, this kind of sounds like uh, cultural. What's that word I'm looking for? Um, chauvinism? I guess chauvinism. Is that a good word? Maybe. Um, that's a hmm. tough one. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. But yeah. So. I, I can only imagine 
these English people in the Netherlands, right? And they're like, and they're scared that their children are speaking Dutch, like you said, right? And they're like, and it, it reminds me today of uh, a lot of, especially older Americans today, a lot of old older Americans, their fear of Spanish and Hispanic people. You ever notice that? I guess, but it's kind of like the opposite direction here where it's because the English are the immigrants and it's like the people who become (laughs) the pilgrims are the immigrants in the situation. Uh, So it's it's an inverse here. Yeah. I think maybe we can go back a little bit and kind of really figure out who this group actually was though because all we really know so far is that yeah these are separatists from the church of england but what else about them like what can we know more about their character who they were let's get, we need more background i think for sure let's do it so we're going back in time just a little bit right okay so the pilgrims were the english settlers who came to North America on the Mayflower and established a Plymouth colony and was today Plymouth, Massachusetts, named after their final departure port of Plymouth, Devon. Their leadership came from the religious congregations of Brownists, or separate Puritans, who fled religious persecution in England for the tolerance of 17th century Holland and the Netherlands. So there's an interesting group, and you actually shared this a few weeks ago, uh, the brownists. Uh, brownist. What's a brownist? Yeah, it sounds it sounds weird. I'm like, I'd rather be called a brown shirt than the brownist, even though uh, I know brown shirt. You'd rather be called a fascist? <laughs> you would say that. I was just trying to get you. It angry. worked. It fucking worked. Cornbread hates fascism, y'all. He really does. <laughs> I hate fascism, y'all. I, um, I'm like in the middle. What the fuck do you mean here in the middle? <laughs> I like fa- I like some fascism and some fascism I don't. Fash light. What is middle fascism? <laughs> well, it's kind of like in you're sort of fascist, but you're not really fully fascist. Um, you know, kind of like a Diet Coke. Tan shirt and not brown shirt. Yeah, there's the you start with the beige and you kind of work your way to darker shades till you finally get to a brown shirt. So the brownists, who are the brownists? You might right. ask. So yeah, I'm not a fascist, by the way. I was just saying that to make you laugh or make you angry. Sorry. <laughs> so but who are these brownists? The brownists were a group of English dissenters or early separatists from the Church of England. They were named after Robert Brown, who was born in Tolthrope Hall in Rutland, England in the 1500s. A majority of the separatists aboard the Mayflower in 1620 were Brownists, and indeed the Pilgrims were known into the 20th century as the Brownist emigration. Holy shit, dude. The Brown- that sounds like uh, African-Americans, like... The brownest being like a group of very nationalistic African. I don't know. That's that's weird. Are they black nationalists now? (laughs) That that name. That'd be cool. Yeah. yeah. If you had like, if you had like 17th century black nationalists, that'd be cool with it. 
Imagine these brownest pilgrims. Um, with imagine them in the same room with black nationalists. That would be hilarious. That would be like a sitcom or something. That would be a great sitcom. <laughs> Not only black nationalists, but like nineteen late nineteen sixty nine, early nineteen seventy black nationalists. <laughs> so, who's Robert Brown? I figured this is an important character. And then eventually we're kind of going to circle back to the great journey aboard the Mayflower, which any of us who grew up in the clutches of the American education system have heard the story before. So Robert Brown was born uh, somewhere in the 1550s and he died in 1633. He was the founder of the Brownist movements which was a common designation for early separatists of the Church of England before 1620. Uh, Ironically, in his later life, he later reconciled (laughs) with the Anglican Church and he became an Anglican priest. Oh! (laughs) Some irony there. But yeah, so he's born in Tolthrope Hall in Little Casterton, Rutland, England, about 1550. He's the third of seven children between Anthony Brown and his wife, Dorothy, a daughter of a Sir Philip Bottler. In 1572, he graduated from Corpus Christi College in Cambridge and was probably there that Brown first met Robert Harrison from Norwich. Uh, Now, who is Robert Harrison? Robert Harrison was an English lay schoolmaster who also became a religious leader as a Protestant separatist. And he's one of the original Brownists. But we might get the Brownists. So both of these guys, um, Robert Brown and Robert Harrison, were influenced by a Puritan theologian named Thomas Cartwright. And it was... so. Hold on there. You said Puritan theologian. Yes. So... you, you might be thinking, well, wait, didn't the, weren't the pilgrims for the Puritans? So when they say Puritan in this context, well, all they're saying is Puritans are people who they didn't want to separate from the Church of England. They just wanted to purify it, reform it. Yeah, they were yeah. essentially reformists for the yeah. most part. Yeah. And they were they emerged uh, sometime in the 16th century. Mostly because they were dissatisfied with the reforms of the English Reformation and the Church's England, the Church of England's tolerance of certain practices associated with Catholicism. And they were very highly pious. Uh, they adopted what's called reform theology and reform theology is kind of like a major branch of Protestantism. It's basically like another word for Calvinism. So they were very, a very Calvinist motivated group. You know, what's interesting to me too, about that reformism and the idea of reform. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about this too, in terms of think about things like, uh, think about today. Cause we always, we always got to point back to today. Because it helps us learn and uh, it helps us learn better and it keeps us more engaged. But think about today when people talk about reforming capitalism or reforming, I don't know, the Catholic Church. 
Mm-hmm. Here's the problem I have with reform. If you constantly have to reform something, constantly, then there's something wrong with whatever you're reforming. And maybe it doesn't need to be reformed. Maybe it needs to just be destroyed. You know what I'm saying? Replaced with something that doesn't need constant <laughs> reforming. Yeah, it's sort of like... um I mean, let's talk about race here for a second here. It's sort of like racism. Um, it's sort of like when we did, in this country, in United States of America, when we talked about reforming, um, I guess, racism with stuff like the Brown versus Board, the Board of Education, no segregation. Well, there's a problem because what we're trying to do is reform an inherently racist system instead of getting rid of the racist system you feel me yeah yeah it's kind of like trying to reform jim crow or reform segregation instead of getting rid of segregation yeah just destroy it and rebuild on the ashes and so that's what i think about when i think about people who constantly harp on we need to reform, reform. We need to reform healthcare system. We need to reform you know, all this stuff that we hear about today in our politicians, our leaders and our government leaders. All they talk about a lot are reform, reform, reform. I'm like, well, why? If something is inherently bad, destroy it. But just, just interesting. It's made me think. Yeah. I think that says a lot to do with ideology, but mm. okay. But yeah, going back, so Robert Brown and his new homeboy Robert, what's his name? Harrison. <laughs> Robert Harrison. Thank you. Yeah. So Robert Brown and Robert Harrison uh, come to be influenced by a Puritan theologian named Thomas Cartwright, and it's been claimed that after leaving Cambridge. Brown became a schoolmaster at Aundel School, which is a, I think it's called Aundel or Aundel, I'm not sure, but it's in, uh, yeah, it's a public school situated in the market town of Aundel in Northamptonshire, England. So while he eventually, like I said, he gets influenced by this ideology or this theology, I guess would be more accurate. Hmm. And then he finds work as a schoolmaster. Uh, he, he later becomes a lecturer at St. Mary's Church in Islington, where he starts a trend of dissident preaching against a lot of the doctrines and disciplines oh, of, the, of the Church of England. He's like a Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. That's a tough one. He, he's preaching dissident stuff from the normal mainstream, I'm saying. I want things to be more conservative. <laughs> Need more men. And that actually, so his uh, his dissident preaching actually starts to gather more attention. And it's in 1578 where he returns to Cambridge and he comes under the influence of another guy named Richard Greenham, who was a Puritan rector at Dry Dayton, oh. which is kind of like a village civil parish uh about eight kilometers five miles northwest of cambridge Hmm. so 
he starts to be influenced by this guy who is very well known for his own strong Puritan doctrine, especially about the Sabbath. But then Brown may have may have been encouraged by Richard Greenham to complete his ordination and serve at a parish church, you know, as a minister. Uh, he was offered a lecturer position at St. Bennett's Church in Cambridge, possibly through Richard Greenham, but his tenure was pretty short-lived. May have come to reject the Puritan view of reformism from within the church and starts to look outside the established church. So... I respect that. He's, like, that's exactly what I was saying. No reform, get the hell out. Let's make our own. This guy is not... Yeah, at this point, he's starting to become disillusioned with ideas of reforming the, the state church, the Church of England. And he starts to kind of contemplate starting a church outside of that or starting a movement to begin that process. So Brown becomes the first seceder from the Church of England. And he's the first to found a church of his own on what are called congregational principles. Um, so to kind of keep... Oh, so these churches are in the Calvinist tradition. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So... Oh, I, I like it, though. Yeah. Because it's more like each congregation is independent and autonomous. I really like that. Pretty much. And they usually follow, like, a Calvinist tradition where they... That's basically congregationalist church governance. and mm -hmm. It's pretty much what you used to say. They're, they're all pretty autonomous. Yeah, it's more like uh, Quakers, you know. Each one is more autonomous and, yeah. Yeah, so come 1581, uh, well after he leaves the Church of England and starts his own church, he attempts to set up a separate church in Norwich, which is like a, a city in Norfolk, uh, about, let's see here, it is... 100 miles or 160 kilometers northeast, northeast of London. And he's soon arrested and released on the advice of somebody named William Cecil, his kinsman. Uh, and it turns out this William Cecil, he was a statesman. He was, he's William Cecil, first Baron Burgley, was an English statesman, chief advisor of Queen Elizabeth I, for most of her reign, twice Secretary of State and Lord High Treasurer from 1572. So this you is... You just noticed something, though. Yeah? We love people who seem... We seem to love people on this podcast who get arrested. <laughs> we lot. usually do, yeah. <laughs> we, it's seriously, we're probably... We're talking in every podcast about somebody getting arrested. You never noticed that? But this... But we just discovered something very interesting. This guy yeah. is related to... Nobility. Oh, uh, Brown dude? Robert Brown? Ro yeah, Robert Brown. He's uh -huh. related to William Cecil, who's a baron. Yeah. And not only is he, like, nobility, he's worked as the member of the state. <laughs> like, he, sir, he was the chief advisor of Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, after, after he gets his butt released, thanks to William Cecil, Brown and his homies leave England, and they move to Middleburg in the Netherlands later in 1581. Oh, okay. 
So this is kind of, this is where Robert and the Brownists kind of start setting up in the Netherlands. Nice. Shoot, I want to visit there now. <laughs> Go on a pilgrimage? Hell yeah, man. Beautiful water. I hear the Netherlands has a lot of uh, beautiful water scenery. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's articulate, Martin. <laughs> that, was, that was very articulated. Good job. <laughs> hey, man, I'm half stupid. <laughs> so, they set up shop in Middleburg in the Netherlands. And it's there that they also later organize a church on what they conceive to be like the New Testament model. Cool. Basically, how they kind of think the church should be set up. You know, like an axe, I guess. But the community breaks up within two years, and that's mostly be because of internal dissensions. So this doesn't work out very well. And while he's there, he's also starts writing some important works. One of them is a treatise of reformation without tearing for any. <laughs> uh, in which he asserted the right of the church to effect necessary reforms without the authorization of the civil magistrate, which that's very in contrast to what the Church of England is, which is very much a church that is governed by the state. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The worst kind of church. <laughs> one of the worst kinds of churches you could have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the worst, because, yeah, yeah, you're right. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> which is, uh, that's pretty inflammatory, you know, that he's publishing this. And he writes another one called A Book which sheweth the life and manners of all true Christians, which sets out the theory of congregational independency. And this is published in Middleburg in 1582. So he's starting to publish, you know, theory for how to govern a church and how a church should be structured and how to affect change in a church. Oh, look at this next sentence. Oh, my goodness. These books are dangerous because yeah. the following year, 1583, two men in England are hanged at Bury St. Edmunds for essentially publishing and circulating these texts throughout the country. Oh, oh my God. This is like Nazis doing this shit. This is what Nazis would do. Yeah, the Church of England wasn't fucking around at that point. Uh oh. So Brown was the only was only would, an active separatist. I'd be pissing on the churches, man. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> well, here's an interesting thing. He was only an active separatist from 1579 to 1585. Because remember, like I said earlier, he reconciles with the Church of England. He serves as headmaster at St. Olaf's Grammar School, Southwark. From 1586 to 1589, and was also headmaster of Stanford School between 1589 and 1591. He was much engaged in controversy with some of those who held his earlier separatist position, and now looked upon him as a renegade. In particular, he several times replied to somebody named John Greenwood, who was another English separatist Puritan and a Brownist. 
and Henry Barrow, yet another Puritan. One of his replies, entitled, A Reproof of Certain Schismatical Persons and Their Doctrine Touching the Hearing and Preaching of the Word of God. And oh, these titles. Oh, my God. God. Dude, you need, need to work on his headlines a bit. <laughs> so, and so his reply sheds light upon the development of his much later views. So, and it's probably the views that later pushed him to reconcile the Church of England. Well, oh, I, uh, Loki, I, I kind of respect the fact that he had the humility enough to go back to or change his views. Um, because all you people out there, you should not be married to your ideas. I mean, what I mean by that is this. If evidence makes you, if evidence and research proves your beliefs wrong, it's painful, I know, but you shouldn't continue to believe a wrong belief because it's convenient or because it's easy. So we got to change, man. That's why Socrates, I know that I know nothing. You feel me? You dig it? You dig what I'm saying? I dig. So I like the fact this guy was able to change his belief and he wasn't married to his ideas. I mean, think about it. And again, I'm going to go back to today. You have people on both sides of the political spectrum who make money pushing out bullshit and they know it's bullshit, but guess what? They make money from it. And people on the right and people on the left, Fox News, uh, MSNBC, I don't care, right or left, middle, up, down, bull crap. And that's what pisses me off so much is that there's so much grift and scamming. People make money off of these Beliefs, which I don't even believe they believe it. I mean, here's an example. Uh, ben Shapiro, right? Mm -hmm. People like that or people on MSNBC who make money creating conflict, creating these fake culture wars. They're people who no matter what evidence contradicts their beliefs, they'll keep shilling out their beliefs because it makes them money. And that's why I like this brown dude for saying, you know what? I'm changing my beliefs. So there's my little soapbox ty uh, tirade. Thank you for your soapbox tirade. I mean, what do you think about that though? I mean, I can, I, it's hard to tell in this case what kind of, like, I believe that it's more likely than not that his, views changed when he reconciled with the church of england like legitimately think he was fearing for his life he i don't want to be hanged i mean not in the netherlands but oh okay um but as you can see he goes back to england and mm -hmm. he reconciles and he finds work there and he starts to kind of have like a reversion i guess you could say um so what happens to what happens to Brown? What happens to Robert Brown? You might ask. So his fate's kind of a sad one. Um, oh. 
So he accepts a few more positions as like a deacon and a priest uh, by one guy, Richard Howland, uh, the Bishop of Peterborough in September of 1591. Mm -hmm. He later holds the benefice of Little Chasterton, which is like a very small village and parish. Uh, And then he, let's see. I think he holds another benefice, which is like a position within the Anglican Church, I think. Uh, What's up with these names? Benefice. I have no idea. Uh, And then, yeah, I think he holds some kind of office in a place called Thorpe A Church in Northamptonshire from 1591 to, wait, he didn't live that long. 1631? What the fuck? Yeah, he lived 1633. Oh, yeah, that's right. I got that wrong. Yeah, this brother was like 90 or something. Yeah, this dude, yeah, this dude holds this position in Thorpe A Church for a long time, from 1591 to 1631. Can you imagine having a job for that long? So, Well, in today's economy. (laughs) Yeah. So he married twice, firstly to Alice Allen, thought to be one of his Middleburg congregation, with whom he fathered nine children. Alice, Ooh. yeah, Alice Brown dies in 1610 and, Febu- and in February 1612, Brown married Elizabeth Wariner. <laughs> what is with these names? Elizabeth Wariner at St. Martin's Church in Stanford. He was imprisoned 32 times during his life for his nonconformist beliefs oh, yeah. and died in jail at Northampton. After he was imprisoned for hitting a constable, he's buried at St. Giles Churchyard in Northampton. So that is that wraps up Robert Brown's story. But it's not that's not over for the Brownists themselves as a movement. Uh, yeah, Brown went back to the church. The Brownists and the pilgrims, or we should, let's call them pilgrims, I guess, or well. Let's let's hold off on that well, name for now. That's accurate, though. Let's hold off on the name for now. We're going to keep okay. Okay. For all for all intents and purposes, we will continue to refer to them as the Brownists up until we reach a certain point. Okay. So the Brownist movement experienced a revival after Brown left in London around 1587, led by two guys, Henry Barrow and John Greenwood. And these two were arrested in 1587 and imprisoned until their execution in 1593. Throughout most of their life, they wrote numerous books of Brownist theology and polemic in secret during their imprisonment, which were smuggled out by their followers and printed throughout the Netherlands. The most important being Barrow's A Brief Discovery of the False Church. As you can see, this guy is probably a much better writer because his headline and title (laughs) are actually very short and script. Dozens of other Brownists were later imprisoned and many of them died in jail. So after the execution of Henry Barrow and John Greenwood, the Brownist church uh, was led by a guy named Francis Johnson, who is, he's, he's a Puritan minister. He's very much still in the Puritan tradition. This is a guy who no longer really sees the church as reformable in that regard. 
Well, hell yeah. I mean, once you're killing people for believing something different from you, F that church. I'm getting away from you. Yeah. He spends most of his life in exile in the Netherlands. So as the kind of leader of this brownist community. Okay. So as a Puritan minister, Johnson plays a very important job, or he's given the job of burning brownest books. Wait, <laughs> what? Wait a minute. What? Did I read that right? What is happening? <laughs> I'm confused. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Okay, this is before... Back it up like you all try. Yeah, this is weirdly read. Okay, so... Francis Johnson, he's a Puritan minister at first. Okay. He's he's a he's working for the Church of England, but he's a Puritan. He's a reformer. I got my this got me all messed up here. So Francis Johnson, as a Puritan minister, he has the job of book burning. And he's burning a bunch of brownest texts. Oh but he keeps one for himself. And that book leads to his conversion to the Brownist movement. Well, what a story. Yeah. Oh. So, to escape the fate of Barrow and Greenwood, the Brownists make an abortive attempt to settle in Newfoundland oh, in North America before they go into ex exile oh. into Amsterdam. What was this all under the leadership of oh my Francis gosh. Johnson? Wow. In Newfoundland, or New, how's it pronounced Newfoundland or Newfoundland? I think it's Newfoundland. Oh, this mug is all the way up there in, uh, oh my gosh, northeast, what, what is now known today as northeast Canada? I'm like, whoa, my God. Whew. So these dudes are like trying to get their ass out of here. They're trying to get they're trying to get out of Europe. So get me out. Their first plan, and I believe this is under the leadership of Francis Johnson. Uh in 1597, Francis Johnson persuaded the Privy Council to release him because he's in prison and three mm -hmm. other brownists to found a Puritan separatist colony in the Magdalen Islands off the coast of Newfoundland. Francis, his brother George, his elder, Daniel Studley, and a fourth member of the church, John Clark, were passengers of the merchants Abraham and Stephen Vian Hardwick and Captain Charles Lee of Addington. Johnson left Gravesend on the Hopewell on April 8th with Studley and the other two sailing in the Chancewell. So they already have some a, a really shitty start. Uh, the Chancewell wrecks off Cape Breton. And many of their possessions and supplies are lost in the wreckage. The colonial expedition was soon abandoned for reasons that are not entirely clear. But the historian of separatism Stephen Topkin suggests the expedition failed because of a combination of the hostility and prior occupation of the territory, the loss of their belongings, and the non-cooperation of the crew. Lee later brought them back to England where Francis Johnson rejoined Thomason and the rest of the group, the Brownists, and they decided to make their way to Amsterdam. So this oh, is okay. this is how the trip to Newfoundland okay. fell apart. Um, okay. So they're kind of all in exile at this point in Amsterdam again. This is their second time in the Netherlands. So the first one, the first time we see the Brownists is in uh, 
what was it, Middleburg or Middlebrick? I can't yeah, remember. I think it was Middleburg. Middleburg. Yeah. yeah. And they that was under the leadership Middleburg. of Robert Brown. So, Brown, yeah. The second time where we're at right now, they are in Amsterdam and they're under the leadership of Francis Johnson and others. So the second period in the Netherlands. So Johnson resumes his role as pastor among the separatists with a guy named Henry Ainsworth as a doctor, a doctor as in like a teacher, like a doctor of the church, uh, not like a physician. So in 1598, he becomes concerned in a Latin version for transmission to continental and Scottish universities of a text that appears called the True Confession. And it's really weirdly spelled. It's like T-R-V-E. That's Latin. Yeah. 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 Latin confession. Yeah. Dissensions arose in the community. Soon after, this text kind of starts transmitting. Can we all get along? Okay. No. <laughs> this is Christianity. It's not about getting along. <laughs> oh! That was a jab. Yeah. So they're starting to have like a bunch, besides this particularly divisive text, they also yeah, have some man. other like disputes, it seems. So one guy um, who's just listed here as George. Um, he might have been listed earlier, but I don't know. George. So we're just going to call him George. This guy named George. George, he starts his attacks on somebody by the name of Thomason's Taste and Dress. <laughs> What what the fuck is going on here? This is a weirdly constructed account of their time in the Netherlands. Yeah. Maybe okay. This so is like, really you're not dressing like a Christian, yo, or you're dressing too much like you're with the Church of England? I don't know, but apparently there's some beef between a guy named George and Thompson. So Henry Ainsworth, the teacher, steps in to he tries to prevent a breach. And the Johns what? I can't read the sentence. It's so weirdly constricted and it's very confusing. So, but I guess the TLDR uh, is that Francis Johnson ends up excommuting, excommunicating his brother and his father. I guess George and Thomason are related to Francis. Okay. <laughs> I, I guess. I. <laughs> this is a terribly written sentence. No, no. And, but here's the thing. It all... It's, it's stated, this happens because some dude is attacking another dude's taste in clothing. It's the way I'm reading it. Yeah. Like, like, here's the thing. These dudes come all the way to the Netherlands because they're literally getting killed for believing something different from the Church of England. And while in the Netherlands, this group is attacking each other and one, of the, and, and one of the points of contention is, I don't like the way you dress. There's Woo! there's some beef. There's some weird beef going on. This is These like a, is, this oh is dysfunction. This is a dysfunctional setting in Amsterdam. This congregation <laughs> is completely just off the, off the ball and it gets really worse. Um, so Man, they got their heads up their asses. They're uptight. Well, they check got like wedgies. Oh, well, check this out. Another scandal soon hits the congregation when uh, somebody by the name of Studley, a member of the congregation, 
is accused of having sex with his stepdaughter. So Johnson comes in and he supports Studley. <laughs> he supports Studley. Francis Johnson comes into the support of Studley and considered the allegation unproved. So there's scandal hitting this this community in the Netherlands. Like what what a dysfunctional bunch here. Like I bet the Church of England's like I'm glad these people left. Yeah. So upon the accession of James I to the throne of England, uh, Francis Johnson and Ainsworth visit London to deliver a petition for toleration, uh, which basically is just asking for leniency and tolerance by the state, which proves, which proves unsuccessful. But they were published as an apology or defense of such true Christians as are commonly unjustly called brownists. What is up with these titles? These dudes really need to hire like a professional writer. Yeah, it so is the great. So the petition which they published was called an apology or defense of such true Christians as are commonly unjustly called brownists. So among continue, going forward in their weird time in the Netherlands. This is between 1604 and 1606. A guy named John Smith. No, not not the John Smith from before. This is a different John Smith. Yeah, and it's spelled like Smythe too. The yeah, last name. he's an early yeah. He's an early Baptist minister, and he's a very strong proponent for the principle of religious liberty. But we'll get to him Preach. later. Uh, John Smith, who had been a member of the London Separatist Church, came to Amsterdam bringing a contingent from Gainsborough, Lincolnshire. A contingent of what? Like Probably a contingent of separatists. Yeah, that's, I guess. It's just... I need to slap the person who wrote this article. Well, it is Wikipedia, so... I know, but still, this is just awkwardly written and structured. Yeah. This is what I get for reading Wikipedia. Um, yeah, Smith soon developed individual views, both of church government and public worship, and after 1607, seceded from its, his adherents. Wait, did he secede from the the church in Amsterdam? John's, Johnson's Amsterdam church at this point had its own meeting house and about 300 communicants. So did John Smith just split this congregation? Your guess is as good as mine. I, I, I'm guessing that's what happened. Because he developed his individual views, both of church, government, and public worship. And I'm guessing it really beefed with the folks in Amsterdam. More serious differences arose in 1609 out of the differing views of Johnson and Ainsworth as to the function of of the eldership, basically like elders in the church. Okay. Johnson made up the eldership, or he made the eldership the seat of authority. However, Ainsworth vested all authority in the congregation itself, of which the elders were an executive. Ooh. So... That's some, well, that's interesting church dynamics there. So if you go to a church, and I'll ask you this question, if you go to a church... 
Would you rather have the supreme authority be vested in elders or in the congregation itself? I'm going with the congregation. Yeah, but like if they're voting and they vote for the elders, that's still democratic, right? I I mean, I guess so. Hmm. So there's there's a lot more contention. The, the contention doesn't stop in this the, this weird community. Man, this is like real housewives or real I don't know something of Amsterdam. Real the, separatist or brownest of Ans- Amsterdam. The real brownest housewives of Amsterdam. <laughs> or house dudes. Because <laughs> the dudes are making all the decisions. This yeah. Time, unfortunately. After much discussion. Francis Johnson proposed that the Congregationalists should move to the city of Leiden in the Netherlands, south of Holland. Joining the exiled church there, a group that included at some points people like Robert Parker, Henry Jacob, William Amos, and John Robinson. But the compromise fell apart, and Ainsworth, with his congregation, obtained a, pl- obtained a place for worship two doors away from the meeting house and moved there in December 1610. The Ainsworthian Brownists, as they were popularly termed, were excommunicated by the Franciscan Brownists. And and Ainsworth began a lawsuit for the recovery of the meeting house. Dude, I swear, this is like Crips and Bloods or something. Yeah. What's that you claim at Ainsworth Brownists? I just like the fact that they move literally two houses down. That seems like such a spiteful thing to do. It's like, it's, it's as if you opened up like a margarita stand or whatever. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck you, Martin. I'm opening up my margarita stand two doors down. I'm competing. So, uh, the beef essentially split. Quite literally, the congregation. Uh, so Johnson and his Presbyterians moved onto the city of Emden and East Friesland. And at some stage, how long the Emden settlement lasted is unknown. Francis Johnson passed away in Amsterdam and was buried there uh, January 10th, 1618. So we got a bit of a split going on. Uh, Francis Johnson is dead. Um, what about Henry Ainsworth? What about his dudes? So we're leaving what? We're leaving in the year 1618. We're getting close to when the pilgrims are going to, well, yes, we're getting close to when the pilgrims will arrive in what is called New England. All right? Yeah. Yeah. So. But where are we going to go now from 16, what, 18, 16? Well, I think we should probably conclude what happens with Hen- the Ainsworthian Brownists. Yeah. Um, this gang warfare. Yeah. Let me see here. Uh, That's crazy to me. Just <laughs> you can't get along. And they break mm-hmm. up into factions. Because one congregation actually does leave for North America. Mm, okay. But that's under the leadership of a guy named John Robinson. All right. All right, John Robinson. What's popping, brother? 
Yeah, I'm trying to find out where what happened to the Okay. I'm gonna look up this brother John Robinson. Yeah, up, John I've Robinson? been reading a lot, so maybe you wanna take the lead here. Alright. So, John Robinson, where are you at, brother? So what I'm trying to figure out, I'll do a little research here on multiple websites, is about where so from the, from so from that little what I call gang gang belief warfare, <laughs> what happened next? So let's see here. All right, so I'm gonna go back to I'm gonna go back to that history.com article. So the separatists first fled the Netherlands. And then they're deciding that, hey, we need to, the only true way to live as Christian is to get to the new world. All right, so. Not all of the separatists could make the cross-Atlantic journey. Including their spiritual leader, Reverend John Robinson. Okay, so John Robinson... is okay so john robinson's not going to make it over there but who does make it over there let's see here so i think a lot too i think too also um a lot of the reasons why they wanted to leave the netherlands was the faction uh the faction in the dissension that was going on there so it's mm -hmm. interesting as well um i'm gonna go up here to the Pilgrims, Plymouth Colony, Plymouth Colony up here. This is interesting, though, because it's kind of like we're trying to discover what the truth is in the midst of all this information. So we're kind of doing like real historical research. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. And looking at the primary sources. All right. So. Writing years later in the book of Plymouth Plantation, William Bradford recounted the tearful farewell at the docks in Delfshaven. I imagine um, where in this in Delfshaven where a ship would take the separatists to meet the Mayflower in London. Hmm. So I guess that there's a ship called the Mayflower and it's departing from London to take them across the Atlantic Ocean. And some of the uh, brownest in Amsterdam are leaving to go back to London to get on this ship, the Mayflower. Kind of what it sounded like to me. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's what William Bradford, the primary source, recounts. And here is William Bradford, William Bradford's quote. So they left that goodly and pleasant city, which had been which had been their resting place near 12 years. But they knew they were pilgrims and looked not much on those things, but lift up their eyes to the heavens, their dearest country, and quieted their spirits. Okay. And so Bradford didn't name his community pilgrims and wouldn't have used the term in his lifetime. The first usage of the capital P Pilgrim appeared around 1800 when a group of citizens in Plymouth 
proposed the creation of a pilgrim society to organize the annual celebration of the founding of the Plymouth Colony in 1620. That's very interesting. Before 1800, the separatists who landed at Plymouth Rock were known as the First Comers or Forefathers. Awesome. Okay. So, now we get to the Mayflower. And it's composed of what we would call today pilgrims. And also it's composed of some of those brownists in Amsterdam. All right, Cornbread, that's where we are. All right. So, now, they're all gathered on this ship called the Mayflower. And the pilgrims, led by Bradford, they arrive in New England in December, what is it, 1607? Let's see here. Let Well, no, no, no. Oh, I'm sorry. So, in the year 1620, 1620, the Mayflower arrives in the year 1620 on Plymouth. And roughly half of the hundred, uh, the 102 passengers on the Mayflower died that first winter from starvation, exposure, and disease. Oof. That, woo, boy, you know, our last two episodes about Jamestown, woo, I mean, I didn't realize how brutal um, the coast of our country, the United States of America, can be. If brothers and sisters are dying of starvation, exposure and disease a lot. Wow. Yeah, yeah. and just like the Atlantic, crossing the Atlantic is actually, I mean, oh. nowadays we consider it easy, but. Yeah, oh my gosh, not, yeah. Not how it used to be. Oh yeah, and that would take months. I can't even imagine that, man. That would scare the heck out of me. I'd, I'd be asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Like every day, because... I, all you will see is water around you. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, man, where are we going? Like, I, I I, see water in my back, in my front, on my side. Where am I going here? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Like, can you imagine navigating that bullshit? God, what would you do in your free time? Like, push-ups? <laughs> Just constant, like, push-ups and sit-ups? Running well, around the again, boat? Get your... <laughs> I, I would be scared, man, because... Think about it. Just being stuck in the middle of the ocean. God. Think of that scary. That's a scary proposition. I'm like, can I have like a musket or something so that if we get stuck, I can blow my back and my brains out? <laughs> a blunderbuss. <laughs> like, anybody got at least a knife up in here? <laughs> Please, for the love of God. So, um, to continue, so those. Roughly half of those 102 passengers on the Mayflower died that first winter. They probably wouldn't have been all been dead, but beep, beep, with the help of the native Wampanoag people, the pilgrims learned to fish and farm their new lands, resulting in the famous Feast of Thanksgiving attended by natives and new arrivals in 1621. All right. So the Brownest and pilgrims together they have this famous feast of Thanksgiving with the Wampanoag, I'm saying that right, Indians in 1621, the first Thanksgiving. So um, that would basically be the first Thanksgiving. 
Now we got to we got to decide here. Those were the pilgrims. What about the Puritans? How did how did the Puritans come? Yeah. So, let's well, go to it. Yeah, you go ahead. Oh, okay. So the Puritans actually came after the pilgrims. And so when we talk about the success of the Plymouth colony or the Plymouth settlement, we're not talking about pilgrims. We're going to be talking more about the Puritans. Because check this out. So William Bradford became governor, and we're talking about the pilgrims right now. William Bradford became governor in 1621. And on March 22nd, 1621, the Pilgrims of Plymouth Colony signed a peace treaty with the uh, Masoet of with a brother named Masoet of the Wampanoag tribe, and the Plymouth Colony was surrendered by Bradford to the Freemen in 1640, minus a small reserve retreat of three tracts of land. All right, so let's pause right here. Very important point here. So the Pilgrims are in Plymouth Colony. Now we're going to switch gear to the Puritans and see where the Puritans fit into our overall scheme of the Plymouth Colony. Woo. Mm -hmm. So I think it's good right now for our listeners here to stop right here and think about, I think the main point of everything we said in the previous um how long has it been so far since we started? Corbin? Let's let's see. We have been recording for hour twenty five minutes. All right. So you might be thinking, we've been here for an hour twenty five minutes. Martin, what is the main thing you wanted us to learn throughout there? And the main thing I wanted you to come away with was the the abuse and the subjugation that the Church of England put on these people who believe differently. So basically, when we talk about freedom, let's go back to our main thesis here about freedom. When we talk about freedom, what we have to know is why these pilgrims and these subsequent Puritans that we're gonna see, why did they come over to the new world? Or why, why did the pilgrims even go to the Netherlands? Because they wanted religious freedom from the Church of England. And as we saw, the Church of England were a bunch of savages Savage, cold-blooded, and I don't mean the good cold-blooded, like Rick James cold-blooded. <laughs> I mean bad cold-blooded, you know, cold-blooded predators. The Church of England were cold-blooded in that they killed, literally killed you for believing differently from them. And not only was the Church of England, you know, we're also talking about the Church of England, which is state-sponsored. So we're talking about state-sponsored terrorism would you say that's right cornbread ah uh, i mean i i guess you could say it's terrorism I, well no, if it were state sponsored then the state would be doing it through like a third party that's the thing oh okay this is the state doing it itself yeah so the state is killing people not for crimes but for just believing differently and that's why these pilgrims went to the netherlands a couple of times, and that's why these pilgrims, and also, well, the Brownists went to the Netherlands, and that's why these pilgrims and separatists 
and I'm going to lump them all together and say separatists. Mm-hmm. That's why these separatists went to the Netherlands. That's why these separatists went to Plymouth Colony. Right? So what we see here is a value of freedom. You know, singing George Michael, right? The beautiful, beautiful voice of George Michael. Freedom. You know, I can't sing, but anyway, that, that that's going through my head right now. So freedom. We got this value of freedom. It's an American value. Fourth of July, freedom. But this value is even before July 4th, 1776. This value is right here in 1621. But just like with the pursuit of profit, we're going to see this value transform. And what's he going to transform into? Now let's go into Puritanism. Mm-hmm. All right. And um, we are going to be using, again, um, the wonderful work of scholarship by Gary B. Nash called Red, White, and Black, the Peoples of Early North America. Hell yeah. And we're going to be on page 70, um, and we're using the sixth edition of this book. You said page 70? Yep. And I I posted it in the uh, Discord for us. There it is. All right. And so what I was thinking, we could go to... Um, let's go to 73 and, um, that would probably be a good place to stop for this podcast because in our next podcast, we're going to talk about some pretty, uh, cool, interesting, uh, I guess you could say Puritan figures. So yeah, we're going to go, uh, right now from page 70 to 73. Um, and do you want to start us off, Cornbread? My pleasure. All right. All right. If the Algonquin Indians of the Northeast were learning about the dangers of trade with small numbers of Dutch traders and settlers, they would realize by the 1630s that a different breed of Europeans, intensely religious, was swarming to their ancient homelands. The most numerous of these English, they would learn, called themselves Protestants. Puritanism was, among other things, a religious reform movement. Since the reign of Henry VIII, when England had turned towards Protestantism, Catholic-Protestant tensions had racked the whole country. When Elizabeth ascended the throne in 1558, she attempted to effect a religious compromise, but avowed anti-Catholics regarded the Church of England that flourished under her reign as, at best, a halfway house between a corrupt and a pure church, and at worst, barely distinguishable from the Church of Rome with its liturgy, vestments, rituals, and oppressive bureaucracy. Some of them wanted a more radical cleansing of Catholic elements in order to gain greater purity in their church. Thus, they became known as purifying radicals, or Puritans. Ooh, and that is where that and that is what we refer to when we refer to as Puritans. Um, and you know, I, I kind of laughed when you were re- when you were reading that because I thought of a joke by Robin Williams. Uh, Robin Williams had a joke about uh, I think Robin Williams Williams is actually Anglican, which is the Church of England. Oh, but anyway, yeah. um, I think he called I think he either called Anglicanism or Episcopalianism. Because I think he was an Episcopalian. But anyway, he had a joke where he's like, yeah, it's Catholic light. 
Yeah, I remember so, that one. Huh? Oh, you remember that? <laughs> yeah. So I guess uh, these Puritans are kind of seeing this Church of England as Catholic light, and they want to reform it. They don't like this Catholic light stuff. They're Hell like, yeah. nah, get this shit out of here. They're like, F these Catholics, bro. You're too Catholic. <laughs> get it out of here. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. Puritanism was also a political and social response to a long range of changes that had been occurring in English society. Men and women of this era lived at a time when traditional feudal society was giving way to what we now think of as a more modern social order. This brought the overturning of the traditional church, the growth of cities, and the enclosure of land, an increase in trade, and the rise of a capitalistic society in which the individual had far more freedom to move and make economic decisions. And that is technically true of capitalism. If you compare it to feudalism, at least. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Capitalism has a lot more social freedom and mobility and decision making than feudalism. Well, that's a positive of capitalism. Definitely. There's a lot more uh, freedom and, uh, like you said, economic mobility. Yeah. You also have the freedom to starve, too. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Especially at another person. Yeah. If another person allows it. Yeah. But people with more money. we're, We're seeing like. At this time, Puritanism kind of like co-arising with the breaking down of feudalism and like the the early stages of capitalism, especially in England. The most visible social effects of these long-term trends were uprooted peasants cast off the land, an increase in vagabondage and poverty and frightening increases in urban crime as people crowded into cities, particularly into London, which grew How capitalistic. From, yeah, <laughs> which grew from about 75,000 in 1550 to 200,000 in 1600 and to 325,000 in 1650. Damn. Yeah, so these big urban centers are crowding with workers and the, the dregs of the earth, essentially. People who no longer want to or can live in, like, the agrarian social society that used to be. Well, it, what's interesting, too, is when you were reading that, I thought about a distinction between religious freedom and economic freedom. That's amazing. Yeah. Like, the... Re- the difference being obviously that one implies a freedom to make economic decisions for your own yeah. sake, whereas the other implies yeah. obviously making religious and spiritual decisions. But even with economic freedom, though, even in our society today, I don't really feel like we have a lot of economic freedom, especially when you consider the fact that due to the hand, due to a handful of powerful wealthy bankers your economy can be crashed and then you lose your job you lose your pension like what kind of fucking freedom is that you're at the mercy of the job market unless you're like in the (laughs) top one percent you don't have to work yeah you don't and and you are and you don't even have to pay tax because you don't have any income no 
you just make <laughs> money off your stocks and your bonds and shit and your investments. Ooh. Brother, I want to be a pilg. I want to be a pu- not even a puritan. I want to be a separatist, but brother of economic freedom in this country. Economic puritanism. <laughs> no, 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 not pure. Yeah, not pure puritanism because we don't want to reform it. We want to separate from it. So, oh, economic right. pilgrimism, if that's a word, pilgrimism. Economic brownism. <laughs> <laughs> brother, yeah, economic brownism. <laughs> and when we finally I'm an economic brownist. We finally escape capitalism. I can be like, yo, what the fuck were you wearing? What? Why are you wearing that? You think you're fucking fancy? Get out of here. Well, it's weird. And that word brownness, dude. Dude, to me, that sounds like like a rapper, like like a rapper named Brownest. And they're like super black militant. Like Ice Cube was in the early '90s with his wonderful best rap albums of all time, probably. But that's what I think of when I think of problems. I think of like somebody like a baker who specialized in making chocolate cakes, <laughs> like double <laughs> chocolate cakes, triple chocolate. Yeah, I'm yeah, a brownist. Title their bakery shop is Brownest or Brownism. Brownest chocolatiers. But yeah, so England is experiencing a bit of a transformation of sorts. And it's having some good and bad effects, as it always does. The changes overtaking the English please many, but unsettled others. In the older medieval ethos, people lived within a fixed system of hierarchies in church, government, economic organizations, and family. Life in an English rural village reflected this emphasis on rank and order. Every individual was contained within a web of relationships that conferred both rights and responsibilities. There was the manorial hierarchy with lord, steward, and tenants. The parish hierarchy with vicar, church wardens, and overseers of the poor. The hierarchy of the established church with archbishops, bishops, deans, canons, and visitors, and the hierarchy of economic enterprise with corporations, guilds, masters, journeymen, and apprentices. Ooh, my God, you want to talk about intersectionality? I mean, look at this interhierarchical sectionality. Gosh, gosh. imagine, like, trying to figure out where you fit and these webs of hierarchies. Yeah, it's like... Oh, hey, can you still hear my microphone? Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, okay. Oh, good. Because something uh, just appeared on my screen from my... uh, I'm using my new desktop and uh, something NVIDIA? uh, I don't know. Hey, you're fine. Oh. But yeah, just... Talk about hierarchical relationships. This is sounding to me like a caste system, honestly. I mean, in the old feudal order, it practically was. Yeah. I'm like, man, it's... I'd rather live now than back then. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for all the bull crap we put up with today. I... <laughs> but in modernizing England, individuals gradually worked themselves free of the authority of corporate groups. Little by little, they made inroads on the religious authority, which dictated individual belief, 
on the political authority, which strictly governs civil behavior and defined political rights in a limited way, and on the economic authority, by which guilds and monopolies granted by the crown closely regulated prices, wages, and conditions of work. Thus, protesters, or Protestants, began challenging the authority of the Church of Rome, individual entrepreneurs challenged the rights of the guilds to regulate work, individual enterprises challenged monopolies that excluded outsiders from areas of economic activity, and agricultural operators began buying small farmsteads and consolidating them into larger agricultural units, dislocating tenant farmers in the process. You want to read the rest of that? Yeah. So what we have here, and those last, so those last two paragraphs talked about what it was like before and what it's turning into when we modernize. Right? So now, how are the Puritans responding to all this in England? How are these reformers responding? So, and this is very, very interesting. To Puritans, the sight of individuals breaking free from traditional restraints was fearsome. In religion, they applauded this because it involved placing the individual in a more direct relationship with God by removing the traditional intermediaries, especially the Catholic Church. But Puritans deplored individualism in other areas of life because it left people to their own devices, whereby they acted out the worst fantasies of social anarchy. Social, art, uh, social order, respect for authority, morality, all seem to be crumbling amid the new social and economic order. Everywhere, idle and masterless men, as one social critic phrased it, roam the land. So pause right here because check this out. So the Puritans, right, they're wanting more of economic, I'm sorry, they're wanting more of religious freedom. But it seems like they don't want there to be so much freedom to challenge tradition. So this is very weird to me because it's sort of like it's cognitive dissonance, right? What do you I, think? I think that's, it feels like, is that what it's like to be a neoconservative? <laughs> you mean neocons today? Yeah. I don't huh, know. Interesting. No, explain that more. What you talking about? I don't know. I was just throwing some shit out there. I don't know if that's the case or not. It just seems like, I don't know. It seems more liberal. If hmm. we want to be technical about it, like it's not. It's praising things that you would see valued in liberalism, you know? Yeah. Um, such as like more independence and stuff like that. However, mm-hmm. It's, on the other hand, not overly deviant. It's not radical. It's not revolutionary or anything in that regard. Hmm. So... It feels hmm. very reformist to me, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, we'll refer... Yeah, they were reformist, Puritans. Yeah. All right. All right, so moving along here. And this is also very interesting, too, some of the Puritan thought. So... The concept of every man alone, the individual operating freely in time and space, is at the core of our modern system of values and behavior. Yeah. 
But to intellectuals, social critics, and religious leaders of the late 16th century, where the Puritans lived, this concept conjured up frightening visions of chaos. So they thought of individualism as threatening the concept of community. Interesting, right? Community, people bound together by obligations and responsibility. Now, under this individualism, the Puritans thought the individual rather than the group became the conceptual unit of thinking. To Puritans, this was the antithesis of a tight-knit community. Damn, that's very interesting there. That individualism, right? Every man... I, what? How do we find individualism? Every man for himself or I, every man operating freely? I guess every man operating freely... I mean, yeah. I can I can put myself in their shoes, mm -hmm. and from their perspective, if we're looking at individualism from their particular lens, it seems like individualism is like literally a breakdown of society. Mm. I can kind of see that in American society today. I mean, you look at the new concept of the nuclear of the nuclear family and. You're, and people may be wondering, what do you mean, Miss? Uh, what do you mean, Martin, by the nuclear family? Well, look around you, ladies and gentlemen. Look at your own families. Um, the nuclear family: a mother, a father, and their kids. And usually, the mother, father, and kid they live together. What about the grandma? What about the grandpa? What about aunts? What about uncles? Well, the nuclear family basically says, "Uh-uh, forget all that." The nuclear family is very individualistic where it's a mom, it's a dad, it's it's kid or kids and your grandma or whatever, your your mother, your or I'd say the grandmas and the and, and the grandpas and the aunts and uncles live elsewhere, probably out of state. And um that's what I think of when I think of too of like this individualism in American society. It's very much um dog eat dog, I guess, and the concept of community is second thought if i'm if i'm elaborating that i guess yeah co coherently i i mean i value individualism and i value liberty i value mm -hmm. personal liberty and autonomy and when i think about individualism and what american society offers today to mm -hmm. me it feels like it, it for it makes me remember like what Marx was writing about how mm. capitalism of his time failed to provide these things that many of the proponent like liberal proponents of his day said they would capitalism would bring like equality or liberty. Um, all these things. Uh -huh. And I, I'm looking at like every single day when I go to work, I go, I drive past like four or five homeless people. Mm, yeah. Even when I'm getting back home from work, I'm likely to encounter like two or three of them. Well, and, and in the uh, American, in, in modern American thought too, 
the main thought about like homeless people and people who are down on their luck is, well, they weren't individually responsible for their lives. What happened to your personal responsibility? It's not society's fault that you are where you are. It's your own goddamn fault. And that's what, um, and that's a traditional American, that's what, that's an American belief today that, that was created over, I guess, since the industrial revolution, it's been, it's been created. Um, yeah. Interesting. We I watched a great YouTube video about that actually, uh, from the content creator then and now about the invention of individual responsibility. We could do a whole and, episode about that. Shoot. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and like you, those homeless people that you said, we look at homeless people, I guess, as a general society. I don't, I don't mean individual, but in general, as a society, we look at them as failures who failed to be responsible personally, I guess. Yeah. And obviously, that's not that, community. Yeah. That's not a sense of community. And we're not obviously saying that's what homeless people are, just for the record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, you want me to continue this part? Sure, yeah, you can go ahead. Puritans addressed this problem of the individual versus the community through a new discipline intended to create a regenerated social order. At its core was an ethic that stressed work or industriousness as a primary way of serving God. One did not have to occupy a high station or follow a profession, but only to work hard in whatever station one found oneself, be that lawyer, blacksmith, or common laborer. Each quote-unquote calling was equally worthy in God's sight, and if following conscientiously would lead the individual towards spiritual grace. One of the Puritan leaders wrote, If thou beest a man that lives without a calling, though thou has had two thousands to spend, yet if thou had no calling, tending to public good, thou art an unclean beast. God sent you unto this world as unto a workhouse, not a playhouse. <laughs> that sounds like a, a, a teacher's. I'm a, it doesn't sound like me, but it sounds like I don't know. <laughs> what the hell? You got to work. It's not a playhouse. Was <laughs> <laughs> Ben Shapiro the teacher? <laughs> I don't know. You going Can you imagine place? Ben Shapiro trying to teach a high school class and like nobody's oh, listening God. to him? You need it. Well, I mean, well, hypothetically, if you listen to what I said, you you're. <laughs> okay, so we're starting to see a little uh, Protestant work ethic emerge. Oh, good point. Puritans organized themselves into religious congregations where men and women labored together, disciplined themselves and worked for mutual salvation. Each member not only worked for his or her own perfection, but also scrutinized the behavior of others for signs of waywardness. Furthermore, to reform their society at large, the Puritans believed that they must assume responsibility, moral stewardship, 
over all those around them. In a chaotic and criminal world, God's quote-unquote elect must not only save themselves, but also assume the burdens of civil government in order to reform society at large. Wait a minute. This is sounding like, to me, it's sounding like theocracy. It sounds very... you. Theocracy light. <laughs> Let's check this out. In a, so the Puritans believe in a chaotic and criminal world, God's elect must not only save themselves, but also assume the burdens of civil government in order to reform society at large. Ooh, that kind of sounds to me like uh, modern super evangelicals. Kind of? I mean, yeah, I, I, I would mean, say so. President Mike, uh, or former Vice President Mike Pence would be a compared to him. I, yeah, probably. I don't know, this worldview kind of sucks. Hell yeah. And, and these are the same people who are going to America for freedom. Yeah. And everyone's like scrutinizing each other and being uppity and judgmental. What kind of freedom is this? Sister Clara, why are you wearing that skirt? You have a big bosom. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. What do you think a bosom is? Wait a minute. All right, hold on. Bosom, bosom. Is that like the chest or the... Yeah. It's your, it's your chest. <laughs> no. <laughs> Why you know, does it sound like a butt? <laughs> no, it's it's like the chest. <laughs> well, oh my God. Oh, that explains something. <laughs> well, now you learned something today. Jeez, yeah. I, oh boy, yeah. I'm not going to tell that story. <laughs> One, uh, one time I, uh, uh never mind. Uh, maybe we should continue. Yeah. <laughs> Others who could not find Christian truth in their hearts might have to be coerced and controlled, directed and dominated. Thus, all would be bound together and covenant to do God's work. Puritanism was thus a radical plan to bring about the conversion of the whole society. Oh. A mass movement with an ideological vision which would rule the land, a radical departure from traditional thought which held that kings ruled by divine right and delegated their authority to those below them. The rise of Puritanism during Queen Elizabeth's reign and the subsequent persecution of Puritans by her successor, James I, as a familiar story. Here, it is enough to understand that despite their initial successes, Puritans were increasingly harassed by, King, by King James. By the 1620s, many were convinced that to perform, to perform, oh, to reform English society, sorry, you're, it got blurry, to reform oh. English society, they would first have to carry out their crusade in another part of the world. Economic opportunity also beckoned abroad at a time when many Puritans were feeling the effects of economic depression in England. But ideological, but let's see here, ideological commitment marked them off 
from the Virginia colonizers. Okay. Fired by a vision of building a Christian utopia, they arrived in New England far differently disposed than English settlers to the south. In Virginia, by the contrast of spirit of communalism and so and an ideological vision were conspicuously absent. Let you finish the rest of this off. Yeah. So, well, stop, stop right there, because pause there, because you know how we talked about in the previous episodes, uh, Jamestown in Virginia. This is what the author's referring to. Um, so these Puritans have a different ideology than the settlers in Jamestown, because the Jamestown, as we as we mentioned before, and as we did a whole episodes on, in Virginia, the spirit of or Jamestown, the spirit of communalism and an ideological vision were absent because why they wanted profit. They came to the United States of America or it wasn't the United States of America then, but they came to Virginia to found Jamestown for money. They wanted the money for the shareholders. They wanted gold. They wanted their pursuit of freaking profit. But these Puritans want to leave England for a very different reason, for a more of a religious ideological reason, reason, I guess. These Puritans wanted to not make a lot of money, not make money. That wasn't their primary goal. Their goal was to, it sounded like their goal was to religious freedom, but religious freedom to do what? Interesting, right? Well, I think we can use some hints from what we read earlier about mm. their ideal society mm. to kind of make some conclusions. Yeah. To form a hypothesis. We're going to see the consequences of, those, uh, of that too. Yeah. Um, but I'll continue uh, the next one. So the Puritans, these Puritans were by no means the first Europeans to reach, to reach the shores of what they called New England. Yeah, we just read about the pilgrims, or we just talked about it. Fishermen of, very, of various European nationalities have been working the Newfoundland banks and drying their catches on Cape Cod and the coast of Maine since the late 16th century. And hundreds of fishing ships had visited the New England coast and made contact with local Indians before 1607. So, the small number of men alighted or got off on the coast of Maine, beset with food shortages, fire, and inhospitable winds lasted only briefly. So, before the Puritans came, the author is just saying what it was like. So, to continue, not until 1620 did a permanent settlement take root at Plymouth, Massachusetts, this time planted by several hundred English pilgrims who had earlier fled to Holland. And we talked about that previously. So slowly in the 1620s, other fur trading and fish drying settlements took root along the coast. But none of these compared with the great Puritan migrations that began in 1630 when 11 ships and some 700 passengers set out from England. They were the vanguard of a movement that by 1640 had brought about 12,000 people to New England's shores. And that, I think, is a great place to stop right now and leave you on a uh, 
cliffhanger of what's going to happen once these Puritans arrive now in the 1630s. Yeah. We what have, do you think, Cornbread? I think it's a good point um, yeah. because we've spent a good portion of the episode basically describing like the origins of the, this movement. They came yeah. from the Brownist movement. Yeah. And as we kind of learned, it was very, it became very splintered very quickly, um, depending on who was in charge. So like, these aren't really the pilgrims. These aren't really the Brownists that were under Henry Ainsworth and Francis Johnson either. Mm-hmm. Like those, they settled in Amsterdam. This is a different, different faction altogether who are leaving mostly from what we can see what is England or um well the brownists left Holland and then got on the Mayflower in London that's right along with other separatists and together they're collectively known well I would say collectively we can call them the pilgrims right and that was in 1620 yeah so I think we just we kind of made a good case for mm-hmm. who these people are. Oh, yeah. The differences between Puritans and Pilgrims. And yes. we learned more about the Puritan ideology. Which is troubling. Yeah. It's troubling. They want religious freedom, but freedom to do what? <laughs> to control well, each other. Yeah. And this is going to... And let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, tune in next week, too, because holy crap, we're going to hear about some, oh, geez, some cold blooded people in this cold blooded. I mean, in a good way, a Rick James way, because we're going to hear about people like Roger Williams, who actually lived with the indigenous peoples and took offense against the uh, against the Puritans. And we're going to hear about Ann Hutchinson who was excommunicated from the Puritans. So we're going to hear about some pretty cool people that rival the coolness of the PUF, right? So it's going to get really spicy. Well, it's going to get spicier. (laughs) We're going to be like on not mild or medium. We're going to be on hot. So we're going to be on high, baby. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and check out the notes that I wrote down in the margins here. Um, fascism. Um, oh, I didn't even notice yes. that. Religious theocracy. Oh, boy. We're going to get some deep stuff here. And uh, whew, who knew that the history of the United States of America, even before the founding of the country, was so uh, strange and fascist? <laughs> Weird, right? I agree. So, yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about next week. And uh, pretty good, man. Yeah, make sure to catch it. That was one hell of an introduction we did this week, though. Absolutely. Nice. All right, everybody. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope to catch you next week. Absolutely. Come back. All right. Have a good one, everybody.